0: Hello and welcome to Lightmap from Sifter. My name is Gianni and my co-host on this episode is Fiona. Thanks for joining me, Fiona.
1: Thank you for having me. It's great to be here.
0: On Lightmap, we explore what it takes to make video games and interactive media and we meet creative teams from all around the world. It's a guide to interesting new gameplay experiences and every episode you get to meet people uh, who develop games, artists, musicians, researchers and more. Sometimes people who do a few of those things all at once wearing many hats. Our guest on Lightmap is Andrew Sholdice, who's the primary developer of a game called Tunic, which is a fantasy adventure with some Zelda styling. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us.
2: I'm so happy to be here. Thank
0: you for having me. We can't wait to learn a little bit more about this game, which is really all about discovering a world on your own, working out your own path with some very clever guidance uh, built into it as well. Uh, first, though, let's find out what's been making the news this week on Walkthrough.
1: Hi, I'm Fiona Bartholomew. And I'm Kyle Paletto. And here are the top stories this week on Walkthrough, SIFTA's weekly news podcast for Sunday, 10th of March. We have the highlights from this week's Xbox Partner Preview. Roguelike deck builder Bellatro pulled from stores due to misunderstanding about its gambling content. A $2.4 million US dollar settlement has killed the two biggest Switch and 3DS emulators. And this year's BAFTA award nominations are here. You can get every episode of Walkthrough for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or on our website, SIFTA.com dot com. au every Sunday.
0: Australia's best video game podcast.
1: This is Lightmap. Get every episode free on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and SIFT.com.au dot au. So, Andrew, what is Tunic?
2: Tunic is an isometric action adventure about a tiny fox in a big world where you explore the wilderness, fight monsters, and find secrets.
1: I love that so much.
0: (laughs) The Legend of Zelda is an obvious uh, inspiration. You can really see the look of it there. Um, Can you tell me why?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Tunic wears a lot of its influences on its sleeve. Some of them are buried a little bit deeper, but usually when people look at the game for the first time, they say... This looks like Zelda, uh, and that's understandable. You know, you're a little fox. You're wearing green. You uh, maybe you find a sword. Maybe you find a shield, and you're exploring a big sunshiny world, trying to you know find secrets in places. What's around that corner? What's what's coming next? Um, and there's a reason for that. Like I I love that game. Um, it's it sort of represents to me not just. To <clears throat> you know, it's a cool game in and of itself, but it also represents that era of games where you could just be dumped into a world and not know what is expected of you or what is out there, really. Um, You know, it's uh, harkens back to an era, I think of, um, you know, getting getting a rental cartridge or something and not really knowing much about the game, just throwing it in and suddenly being tossed into this world that, you know, you don't really understand its rules entirely, you know, maybe you have an instruction manual that came with it, but you don't understand everything it says because it's either in a language you don't understand or you're five and don't know all the words yet. Um, and so that's really why the core inspiration for tunic came from, um, the legend of Zelda and, and other games like that, you
0: know? Can you tell me about some of those newer, more modern games that you've worked into into Tunic as well?
2: The uh, there are a few touchstones I think with the Soul series, uh, and one sort of broadly is mechanical, and it draws a few things from from that game, like. Uh, you know, how the state of the world works. If you open a door, but then die, the door stays open. But if you rest at a checkpoint, monsters come back, you know, there's, there's some amount of threat to perishing. Although you can recover that these sorts of things. There's a, you know, a stamina meter, although it works quite differently in tunic. The reason for that is that early on, I thought, I mean, and embarrassingly, because this is a thought that many people had and have had is uh, what if... You know, this beloved classic was implemented with uh, more modern combat sensibilities, um, and originally Tunic was adhered to that a little bit more closely. And over the years, sort of refined and found its own thing there. You know, like the stamina bar is not a traditional um, Solzian stamina bar or anything like that. So there are there are some mechanical elements, and we can we can talk more about that if you like. But the other side of it is. Um, sort of an emotional one I think and it is the same feeling as we talked about with the legend of zelda you know you do feel like you are you know plopped into a strange world in those games a lot of the time not really knowing what's out there aside from a there's treasure b there's terrible things that want to kill you and just sort of like making your way through this place seeing what you can see finding what you can find and knowing that your experience is probably going to be somewhat different from other people because there are secrets that are well hidden enough that you're not meant to find them if that makes any sense.
0: Is this an experience that, you know, people who are playing a game in the modern context understand or, or is this sort of like a love letter to that time for you?
2: Yeah, totally. It's um <clears throat> that I don't think that experience has truly gone away. It's just changed. And so when we look back at the, you know, the schoolyard uh, story that people tell of, you know, trading tales of what you can and can't do. You can, you know, you can go past the end in Mario. Like, what's that all about? Or people just making stuff up. Um, the, all those experiences that that sort of like sharing of information still exists to a certain degree. It's just that the, the barrier then was, um, well, you just, you can't know you're, you're on the playground and you just need to take That person's word for it. Um, But now, because we have access to exhaustive, completely comprehensive information about everything, um, the the barrier exists within us, right? That's why spoiler warning is such a big thing, because people love not knowing things, you know, as easy it is as it is to get information. uh, And as much as we talk about, you know, like, wow, you can't really make a game with secrets, people just look it up on the internet. And it's like, well, yes, but people don't want to do that. They like not knowing, they like figuring things out for themselves. And so, uh, I feel like that experience still exists, you know, in our, in our discord when people were playing the game and even the demo, but, but when the game came out, folks will come into our, our spoiler channel and, and ask, Oh, how do I do this? How do I get that? And people won't just tell them the answer. They'll give them clues. They'll be cagey about it. They'll say, "Oh, wait, have you checked page twenty three? Do you really understand it?" Um, you know, uh, they'll just you know uh, post an emoji of three flowers or something like that. You know they're they're part of the design experience now too. like they they get it and they understand that people value that that sort of um, feeling of discovery.
1: I really like how the what you were saying there with the community getting on board with the keeping the secrets and encouraging people to figure it out themselves with just a few little hints and tips.
2: Yeah, it's it's really lovely because not only is it it's helpful for the people who are playing the game and getting the tips, but it's also heartwarming for the community and the developers to see sort of everybody working together to make this, you know, fun. A fun little experience for everybody.
1: And the game is absolutely beautiful. When it first got announced and the first, the trailer first popped up, I was blown away with how beautiful it was with its colors and designs. Can you walk us through with the development of the look of Tunic?
2: So I I had known that I wanted to make a game about secrets for a long time, you know, didn't really know what it would look like or feel like or anything like that. Um, but I started experimenting. I think I, you know, I had played Monument Valley and, uh, Uh, and some other, you know, uh, games, I was playing a a bunch of actually Legend of Zelda at the time I I, as an adult was finishing it finally for the very first time. Um, And trying to think about how a world like that could be represented in uh, an isometric world with these sort of very broad gradients of color, very careful attention paid paid to, um, you know, like concentration of detail and, and stuff like that. And so, very early versions of Tunic were highly geometric, um, had these gradients of color, not very much in the way of texture, though, um, and it stayed that way for a while. But over the years, and, and it's been a while—the game was in development for you know seven years. the The style had to change a little bit because uh, it's a it's a game about exploring a ruined world and big broad swaths of flat color contrast strangely in my eye to ruined things you know things that have fallen apart suddenly the concentration of detail is very strange you have very flat spaces with no detail and then high concentration of detail with you know a crumbled wall or a piece of rubble in the ground or or something like that and so i gradually started adding visual detail like noise you know, subtle textures, it's it ended up being sort of a trick. This, uh, yeah, a little bit, um, getting in the weeds, but the amount of iteration on things like a brick texture took a while, because if you make it too realistic, suddenly it stands out as like, wow, what is this very realistic, noisy thing with lots of information, lots of detail, um, sticking out in this otherwise flat world. And if you remove too much of that detail, then suddenly it looks unfinished. Like there's a you know missing texture, or something's hyper smooth when it when it's supposed to evoke this feeling of, of you know ruined or weathered stone. Anyway, it's a it was a complex process that took a lot of a uh, lot of iteration, but um, it uh, yeah r- rules like how, how blades of grass can be placed. You know, they're always usually in groups of four because if they're just scattered randomly, it looks weird. So it it sort of has this. Um, Uh, tries to to stay somewhat uh, not realistic but at least um, you know visually interesting enough while still staying true to these uh, sort of geometric uh, roots.
0: Have you got any examples of you know when you were iterating on this design and the look of the um, you know when you're starting to put a bit more detail into it instead of it sort of almost being uh, you know those big flat geometric shapes that you you realize you went too far and had to pare it back. (laughs)
2: Um, yeah, totally. It, these aren't necessarily like, Oh no, this whole area is too detailed. We need to redo it. But it's more like, uh, I'm making a, you know, a brick wall texture or, or uh, or some, you know, some paneling somewhere, some, some marble floors. And, uh, I add a, uh, a normal map, which is a way of sort of like undulating the surface of something that is actually just flat geometry. Um, so it catches the light and what have you. And the game does use some of those, but they're very subtle. If they were anything more than very subtle, it suddenly looked very strange. It looked like it was this, uh, you know, uh, v- very present d- deep thing. And, and I don't know, I don't know how to describe it. It looked v- very wrong. Um, and so, yeah, the trick was just just barely having a little bit of that sort of detail. Um, yeah, working on just the the ubiquitous sort of sandstony looking stone material that's all over the place. Um, there were, there were versions of that where it was you know you could see every you know fleck of of uh, or pebble inside it, and at a certain point, it just was like, oh, this is no, no, take it back.
1: Can you tell us a little bit more about the language in this game? There's a secret language you can't understand with English as well.
2: Like I said, the the idea with um, the language without, I mean, don't want to go into spoilers too deeply, um, but the the experience of leafing through something and um, not fully understanding is, I think, very powerful. Like, um, this is not specifically an instruction manual example, but I remember playing uh, Super Mario Brothers when I was a child and getting to the warp zone. Um, and for those who aren't familiar with the warp zone, the, the one that I got to at least is at the end of the second level. You can sort of go past the end of the level um, by, you know, getting on some platforms and climbing over the top of the exit. And you find yourself in a, in a strange room and text appears on the screen, which is something that doesn't happen really anywhere else in the game. And I was like an actual child. I had no idea what was going on. I, I probably had not seen the word warp or zone before just welcome to warp zone. Um, and it, I was paralyzed. It, it was so exciting, you know, uh, and that feeling of, you know, putting two and two together and not fully understanding something, but having it be full of question marks is, um, is sort of the feeling that I wanted to evoke with the, 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 the glyph text in the game, you know? Um, and uh, I mean, the game has been out for a little while. And uh, if you, you know, look up for anything about tunic on the internet, you will probably see that maybe there is some meaning behind that text. Um, and originally that was meant as sort of like an Easter egg, you know, like, haha, wouldn't it be neat if it actually meant something? Uh, but it turns out that people really like the game and there are people out there that really like, you know, doing linguistic analysis or whatever um, and have managed to, to piece it together. And that's very cool to me um, that people would want to do that. And I think it means that there is, I guess, another layer uh, for the game if, if people are interested in, in, you know, digging in deep and discovering more about this world than, than it lets on.
0: Not to go into too much about what this language actually is, but can you tell us a little bit about when you were designing it? Um, what were some of these rules that you used to design a, a language to communicate something that obviously people on the internet who are very good at this <laughs> can, de- can decipher? Um, is, it a, is it a straight one-to-one swap of, of a different language, or how does it work?
2: Sure. So I'll uh, just on the off chance that someone is interested in playing this game and likes that sort of thing, I won't go into specific details, but I will say that... Um, We, I I knew at the time when I started working on the game that, uh, we were living in a post Fez world. And, uh, I'm sorry if you have not played Fez, I might be spoiling a little bit. You might know that Fez has a language in it that is a character by character cipher for English. And, uh, the beauty of the language in that game, in my opinion, is that it is so well integrated into the aesthetic of the world that I uh, when I first played it, didn't really think much of it. Like, oh, it's just, a, it's cool characters on the screen that I'm not supposed to understand. Please let me play the video game. I want to jump around because you get this big, big dump of it at the beginning and, and not much until a little bit later. Um, and so, you know, there are plenty of people who sort of knew about this or are just the sort of person that would, you know, bust out the frequency analysis tool set the moment they saw a wall of text, but I was not one of those people. And so the reveal there is that, you could have been reading this the whole time and it's actually quite simple to figure out once you sort of have, you know, seen a sufficient, you know, number of instances of it. Um, so developing something like that, uh, in, in a, like I say, a post fez world meant that it couldn't just be a character by character cipher to English. Um, because anytime people see, you know, glyph text or, or, or unusual language, you know, it's like, crack your knuckles, look for the one that's most frequent. That's your E, you know, it's, yeah. And the, the beans are spilled immediately, but having it just be a little bit more obtuse um, meant that uh, I think that that will happen or has happened less frequently. Like I said, it's a game about making you feel like you, you know, don't belong, that this world isn't made for you. And so the, that feeling of, of trying something that you think is going to work and, you know, tried to understand a language and and realize well this is this is above my pay grade there's something going on here that I do not understand is is a, is a great feeling to me. I love that right I love knowing that there's more to something you know solving puzzles is great but realizing that a puzzle is deeper than you could have possibly imagined is 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 more exciting.
1: Another thing I quite liked in the game was that there was never an explicit go here do this this is your current mission the gate the the levels almost guided you subconsciously to where you need to go what you did need to do but also to the point where it feels like you're just exploring uh, could you tell us a little bit more about why you designed the levels that way
2: absolutely uh my i i love getting lost you know uh i love feeling like i'm actually exploring um open world games are great for that sort of thing you know pick a direction and go uh for a, a team of the, the size of Tunic, which is very, very small, it's not really in scope, but we tried our best to make sure uh, that, you know, it, it felt like you were making some of your own decisions, you know, uh, and that you were truly exploring. And if you can't build, a, you know, an infinite sprawling world, then the best you can do is um, at least not railroad the player into a particular path, I guess is, uh, is, is one approach. And so early on there is a little bit of uh you know funneling uh only and only a little um, before you you know get some items that let the world open up a little bit the design of the game or or at least one part of it centers around uh the internal terminology we call them uh, soft gates and garden paths and soft gates or or firm gates uh are contrasted with hard gates where you have a, uh, a requirement that you have the key to go through the door. And there are a few of those in tunic, but a lot of the other ones are either knowledge-based. Um, like, Oh, I didn't know that I could do this. Um, or I didn't know I could slip behind this corner and get to this place that I am not ready for, or find this treasure that I'm quote unquote, not supposed to have yet. Um, and, uh, some of them are, uh, more about, you know, um, uh, skill to a certain extent, you know, this, this monsters were too hard. I don't have the techniques or the, the upgrades or, or what have you. Uh, and, uh, the, uh, the, the garden path terminology is specifically about that, that sort of knowledge-based, um, uh, roadblock where, there's just a, a the isometric perspective affords us the ability to add sort of a little little secret path that you can't normally see. But once you know it's there, once you've used it a few times, you you start to realize that you can get around this world a lot more. And all of those things are uh, ways to help direct the player in a particular way while keeping the world open and allowing people to discover new things about it, because the. The feeling of excitement of oh wait here again this place this this was this was here the whole time that's so cool is is a fun feeling and another fun feeling perhaps even more fun is starting to ask yourself wait a second how many of these are there um, you've you've mentioned Fez a few times but
0: that was the feeling it sort of brought to me because it was like just a matter of something being outside of your perspective from where you're standing right at this moment but if you look around a corner if you just push in a corner it even got to the point where If I came across a waterfall and I couldn't walk through it, I was a little bit disappointed because there were so many of those (laughs) around. Um, Can you tell me a bit about those, hiding these secrets in this world, um, you know, rules that you wanted to have for players, um, whether or not they were essential or non-essential? How how did you sort of design that element of it? My
2: background before I started working on this game um, is... Uh, a genre called hidden object games, which are point and click adventure games interspersed with sort of picture find and other sort of, um, uh, you know, puzzles. And when I was designing those, um, I actually hearkened back to something that I did as a kid, which was designing like point and click adventure games that I never ended up making, but I, I drew the like requirements graph of, well, you need these two items in order to unlock this door. And once you unlock this door, you get these items. And if you explore here from that place, you get this item and that can be used together to solve this puzzle, right? And you have this directed uh, graph with no cycles in it that leads to the end of the game. Anyway, uh, I tried doing that for Tunic early on, you know. Uh, Okay, sword, chop down bushes, got it. Then you can go behind the waterfall and then you can get this. And then you need to get the key the shield and you need you need this item to get past these enemies and then i wanted to do the thing where it's like well you don't actually need the sword you can maybe do something sneaky and get an item that lets you get past the bushes early but you can only do it once or something like that so well, maybe i'll make a dotted line you know maybe that's that's the way that i will express that in this organizational tool and um oh this enemy is supposed to be really hard you need to have like a couple of hit point upgrades in order to do it But if you're really good, you could get past it. So I'll put a dotted line there as well. And pretty soon it was a a mess of a document. There was no, everything, there was just dotted lines everywhere. It It didn't make any sense. You, there was sort of an intended quote unquote path, but you could. And at a certain point I realized, no, I'm not going to try and codify things this directly. Um, I am just going to make sure that anytime there is a challenge, you know, we pay careful attention about to, you know, is this supposed to be a hard gate or is this something that we want people to sort of be able to sort of stumble their way through and, and get into a place where they're not supposed to be? Um, yeah. So d- developing the the tools or, and really just the way of thinking about that was as an iterative process for sure.
1: Now you're the primary developer of Tunic. What were some of the challenges of wearing so many hats over the years of creating this game?
2: So, yeah, I'll, I'll go through the team a little bit just so, so folks have a little bit of context for it. Um, I started working on the game in, in 2015 and knew fairly early on that I could do plenty of things, but there were lots of things that I couldn't do, namely uh, sound effects and music. And in the prototype that I made, I had some very rudimentary generated sound effects that I, at the time, I thought were, you know, pretty okay. But um you know 7 years later i realized that the the work that power up audio specifically kevin regamy did on it um elevated it a great deal and so i uh kevin loves secrets and hiding them in video games uh and alternate routes and speedrunning and stuff so it was a natural choice to to work with power up and i'd been listening a lot to the music of uh terrence lee who works under the name Lifeformed he made the soundtrack to dust force which is a game from a number of years ago as well as um uh the the soundtrack to double fine adventure or double fine documentary they're, they're sort of the, the piece that that was put together about their journey through making a game and i listened to that album a lot when i was thinking about tunic and, and so i reached out to terrence and um later started working with uh janice kwan as well to make the soundtrack um, which you should check out. It's phenomenal. I can, as someone who didn't work directly on it, I feel like I can be effusive about it. It's uh, yeah, it's really really special. Check it out, Tunic soundtrack. Um, and you know, I thought, okay, well, there, there's all the bases covered, right? You've got uh, you got music, you've got sound, and I can I can do the programming and the the level design and the art and the animation and the UI and the programming and all this stuff. Um, it turns out that that's not all you need to make a video game. Uh, so you asked about the challenges. One of the challenges is you know coming to terms with the things that I uh, knew I didn't know how to do, and now realizing there are plenty of things that I didn't know that I didn't know how to do. And a lot of that has to do with you know, the business side of things. So I partnered with um, uh, Felix Kramer and eventually uh, publisher Finji, um, it was Rebecca and Adam Saltzman on doing sort of all the things that are required for game development that aren't literally pressing the buttons that get built into a binary to distribute to people uh you know uh you know contract negotiations uh hiring qa getting ready for shows um merchandise all all these things uh and so that was a yeah an eye-opening experience for sure like i knew some sort of business stuff was was required but yeah it's it's a full time job at least for sure. Um, later on, also Eric Billingsley came on to help with um, level decoration, and um, I say putting the finishing touches on, but he was on for you know the past couple of years on the project. Uh, and anyway, all of which is to say, I have come to respect a great deal you know the the power of having full control over something is fantastic and that was sort of where i came from at the beginning of the project you know i've worked on these projects where somebody else has creative brains what if i had complete control over stuff and the answer is yeah you you can still have creative control over something um while still uh working with other people and having their powerful input uh be reflected in the game as well, that was a, a a profound moment for me. Was just having fully described the game to. Um, I mean, it's happened a few times, but I remember talking to to Adam Saltzman and just sort of having this multi hour long discussion and going through the entire design of the game as it stood at the time. And then another human being at the end of the conversation being able to ask uh, questions about it and understand it. I was like, wow, you oh you have this in your brain now too. That's so cool uh it's, it's very valuable for a number of reasons, because it means I can say, I think this is a bad idea. And someone can say, no, it's fine. You've already implemented it. It's good. It works. Don't tear it all down again. Or someone can say, listen, I know that you've got your heart set on this. I don't think it's ready. And, you know, I can spend more time on it. That's, that's very valuable.
0: Um, the game... It's critically, overwhelmingly positive. It sounds like you've built a community as well that are just loving sharing this game and having people experience it for the first time. How does it feel to be uh, at this point uh, after seven years of development uh, where people love
2: the thing you've made? Uh, Very weird. I need to consciously immerse myself in that reality to really make it stick to my brain for any length of time. Because for, you know, the better part of a decade now, I have been, you know, working on something. And at times, you know, at times, I think, Oh, that's pretty cool, I guess. But there are a lot of other times where I was convinced that it was an absolute tire fire, just hot garbage all around. And it is, you know, that that changed, I, you know, I realized that, you know, it's a people are playing the game in QA and testing and, you know, it's come together. People are saying it's great, but we'll see. Um, and so I have armor built up of anytime time anybody says the game is good, or I think to myself that maybe the game is good. I was like, ah, don't mm, careful. Don't rest on those laurels. Lots of people think their games are good. It's maybe it's still bad. Uh, so I, I need to, um, I'm letting that dissolve a little bit and it is heartwarming to know that people have not only like played and enjoyed the game and, and it's received you know critical success and, and that, but also that the reason for that is that those feelings that I had and everybody on the team had of wow, isn't it cool to feel like you're really exploring? Isn't it cool? To think, wow, this was here the whole time. Uh, isn't it cool to realize that there's another dimension and then another dimension to a game? You know, a, a world is, is full of secrets in ways that you couldn't have imagined at the beginning. Isn't that neat? That those feelings, despite all these years, have have managed to land for some people. is It's a relief. It's heartwarming. It, uh, it makes me happy.
0: Uh, Andrew, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, speaking to you about your game. Um, It is beautiful to look at, amazing to play. And when we played it at a small festival um, in in Melbourne so many years ago, it stuck in our minds. Uh, So to have the chance to speak to you uh, is a real pleasure. So thank you so much for joining us. Oh, this was
2: so much fun. Thank you so
0: much. Um, You can find out more about the game by going to tunicgame.com or you can follow follow Andrew on Twitter, which is at Dicey. Um, Sifter is produced by Nicholas Kennedy, Fiona Bartholomew. Thank you for joining me, Fiona. Thank you. Daniel Ang, Adam Christu, Mitch Lowe is our senior producer, and my name is Gianni DiGiovanni, and I am the executive producer. Thanks to Omni Studio for their support of Sifter's three podcasts. You can find links to everything we've talked about on our website, which is sifter.com.au. Read more about the games and the guests that we've featured.
1: And why not join the Sifter community? If you enjoyed this, you can share your creativity with others in our very chill server field with awesome people. Uh, You can visit sifter.com.au forward slash discord to get there. That again is sifter.com.au forward slash discord. Uh, Please share this show. Uh, It is the number one free thing you can do to help support us. Word of mouth is really important to indie podcasts like this. So let your friends know if you reckon they'll enjoy it. Just send them a link and maybe it will make it easier for them to get take part in the show and we'll love you forever for
0: it. That's all for now. Thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you uh, on the next episode of Light Map. Until then, have fun.
2: Hi, Chris Button here from Drop Rate Sifter's video game review podcast. Final Fantasy VII Rebirth is finally here, continuing the ambitious reimagining of a beloved classic.
1: It's very, very funny. I guess like that's that's part of the silliness, you know. Like you have this these really big world-ending stakes. You know, Sephiroth is a really terrifying villain. You know, the world's ending, and I think to have a game that is still fun and pleasant to play, I think maybe the tone is kind of. It's important to strike both tones because you need that levity so that it's not constantly depressing, you know? And I think so having the characters have that humour and like having the mini games and having it be a little bit lighter-hearted I think does give you that hope.
2: Does it uphold the legacy of the famous original or burn Midgar to ashes to forge its own path? Find out on Drop Rate, Available now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and wherever you listen to podcasts.